0: If you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I've been starting off the new year by preaching through the Beatitudes. We are almost through them, by the way. After this sermon this morning, we have two more Beatitudes to go, and then we will be returning to the series on the Psalms. But we will begin in verse 1 this morning, and then at the end, arrive at verse 8. Which is the text on which the teaching is based. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord, and so again we say, thanks thanks be to God. You're familiar, of course, I'm going to spend a lot less time this morning going over the connectivity between the Beatitudes, these blessings that Jesus gives, which are basically invitations to know the happiness that is rooted in God. I've told you before that you could you, you could just as well, if you want to get at the idea of blessed, replace it with happy. It's not the best word, but it's probably the best we can do in, in trying to get at what it means. And so the happiness that we find in Jesus, the steadiness, the gladness of heart, the, in a sense, uh, 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 meeting, coming into contact with Uh, the the purpose of life itself, the fulfillment of what we were made for. That's what the Beatitudes are charting out. What we arrive at this morning is this promise. After being told, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and are satisfied by the righteousness of Jesus, it inclines your heart to be merciful to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as we engage ourselves in acts of mercy... We might experience those to be rather difficult and challenging, and so we realize, just as we have from the start, that all of this goes back to the heart, and Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, in biblical language, the heart is the center of your whole being, or to use our terminology, we might say, the center of your whole personality. Now, in our in our modern parlance, the, the heart tends to be the seat of the emotions, right? And so, so you speak of someone with loving, you speak of loving someone with all your heart, loving something with all your heart. Obviously, you're not saying that you're engaging with affection by way of your blood pumping muscle, or blood pumping organ. Sorry, uh, that's that's not what you mean. Rather, you're 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 speaking metaphorically because. In the way that we communicate, the heart was the seat it, the heart is the seat of the emotions. It is also within our familiarity uh, closer to it's not uncommon to hear us use it the way the Bible does the the seat of of your whole being, the seat of your personality. so when you when we say work at something with all your heart, we're saying, put your whole being into it, right and so Uh, if someone says, put your heart into it, they're not just talking about emotions or feelings, they're talking about all of what you are, all of what you've got. And this presents us, though, with a problem. Purity of heart and talk of purity of heart does. Because Jesus says elsewhere that the heart is the source of all of our evil desires. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus touches on this. So within the same gospel that we're reading from Matthew 5, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, okay? So not a very good uh, accounting of what our heart is like. You might also know that, uh, that the prophet Jeremiah referred to our heart as evil, okay? Uh, and that from it come all evil desires. So we are confronted with this problem That our heart is, to quote John Calvin, as it were, a factory of idols. We have have hearts that specialize in idol-making. Our heart is the place where the evil desires come from, but it's also the seat of our whole personality. How's that for an indictment of humanity? That should temper the way, I think that should temper the way we talk about personality and personality types. We should be mindful that when we describe our personality and our impulses, what we might be saying is, this is the state of my being when it's absolutely unrestrained by anything God says. And so let's talk then about purity of heart. If if the heart is the seat of the being or the seat of the personality, the whole being, a way of summarizing all of ourselves, then what is purity of heart? Well, if you're if you are the note-taking type and you want a definition, I'm going to give it to you now. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll say it twice for you, and it's pretty easy to remember. Purity of heart is single-minded devotion to what is good, according to according to God, according to the scriptures. Purity of heart, single-minded devotion, single-minded, single direction of the mind and the heart. So, what is what is let, let's let's reverse that? What does impurity of heart mean? We tend to think it it means a heart polluted by sin. It does mean that a heart polluted by say impure thoughts, impure desires, and I think probably where our minds tend to go is to. Uh, is to lust when we speak of being pure in heart I just I think that tends to be our default kind of direction that we go to when we talk about being pure in heart uh, and that 's for a lot of reasons, uh, given our moment uh, but but when we speak of purity of heart, I think we tend to go straight to seventh commandment violations and all that 's connected to them that certainly is part of it but it 's more than that what 's interesting <laughs> and perhaps challenging for a preacher, is that this is the only time that the phrase pure in heart is used in the entire New Testament. Right? So it, it, gets, it gets uttered by Jesus here in the New Testament, and it doesn't get used again. I'm not saying the concept doesn't get used again, but, but the wording pure in heart doesn't show up again in the New Testament. But as you've seen before, all of the Beatitudes are rooted back in at least one or two or three Old Testament texts, Jesus is in the Beatitudes either directly quoting the Old Testament or at least echoing it in some form or fashion. Likely what Jesus has in mind is a promise from Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. If we can put that one up next, I think that's the next one I've got. Yeah, so Ezekiel. 36, 25, and 26, where here's the promise. From God to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is a, a new covenant promise where God promises to his people to take out their dead hearts of stone and spiritual coldness and give them hearts of flesh. But notice the language, notice the language of uncleanness, number one, of idols, number two, and of the heart. And so here we're speaking of impure hearts polluted by the idolatry. I just want you to see that. Impure hearts polluted by the idolatry. So we have the promise of clean hearts that involves being cleansed, Having impurities and idols removed and being given a new heart, you could say a heart that actually works like it's supposed to. Compare this also with Psalm 24, verses four through six. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Uh, Now, some translations you'll have does not lift up his soul to an idol. So again, you have... You have the uh, connection between purity of heart and the removal of what is false or the removal of idolatry. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, right? So you have this language together once again of purity of heart and of in some sense, seeing God, seeing the face of God. We're going to talk about what that means. Those who can stand in the Lord's presence have, a clean, have clean hands and a pure heart. They've not lifted up their souls to idols, to what's false. Notice again the same uh, sort of connections in Ezekiel. Impurity of heart is impurity of idolatry. Furthermore, in the New Testament, the letter of James picks up on similar themes in James chapter 4 verse 8 draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double minded to be double minded okay is exactly what it sounds like it's like when the bible says the mind it's not necessarily talking about the brain like we tend to but but run with me there for a minute to be double-minded is as though you've got two brains in your head or two hearts in you, competing for, for which one's going to win, two sets of desires competing for attention, competing for actualization, okay? Uh, you might say like the person you want to be and, the, and the, the, the old man, the sinful self. What we see then is that an impure heart is not simply an unclean heart. You noticed all the mentions of idolatry. What this means is that purity of heart, and if you've tuned out a bit, tune back in right here. Purity of heart is never simple outward conformity to rules. You can get someone to outwardly conform to rules. You you can do it. And meanwhile, their heart might be really bitter about it. I mean, if I can talk to children for a moment and, and teenagers, you know there are times where you obey your parents, but you're mad about it. That's not obedience from a pure heart because that's still your, your double-mindedness, your sinful desires, once at war with what it should be, right? Purity of heart then can be summed up as single-mindedness. In 1847, a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard wrote an essay, or a book, which he entitled Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Do you have the picture? Pure, yeah, you kind of can't see it, sorry. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. It's one of those book titles where it's like you read the book title, you're like, I don't even need to buy the book. Like, <laughs> I'm good. All right, got it. I just need to go home and think about that for a few hours, right? Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Not to be a mess of sort of competing desires that's the double-mindedness. Right? And so all of you if you're old enough to want things right which is all of us, know what this is like. I can speak to children here just as well as adults have you ever have you ever wanted to do what you know is good but your insides and your heart wants something else and you know I mean you know what makes you happy and, and what you're chasing after, even if you know it's not a good thing and, and you shouldn't want it, the temptation's still there. It's like you have a second heart that wants the bad things. That's, the, that's part of the struggle that we're seeing here in, in what's called double-mindedness. Okay? Uh, it might also be, uh, you'd also say double-mindedness is a kind of hypocrisy because which, sort of which one is the real you? So here's, here's a test to run on this for purity of heart. So you can take a moment and kind of run this test yourself. When your heart and mind slips into neutral, okay, uh, what we call daydreaming, yeah? What do you think about? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you wish were true about you, or your life, or your circumstances? What do you feel you need? You can learn a lot about yourself by kind of running that little test. And so, Jesus calls us here to purity of heart. Now, there, there might be some, I don't, I don't wanna say I know this for certain, but there might be some who believe that the Sermon on the Mount is only what theologians call a council of despair. That is, you read the Sermon on the Mount and the whole purpose from beginning to end is just to make you go, I'm in trouble. I read, blessed are the pure in heart, done for, okay? Council of despair. Now, it's not less than that, right? It's uh, that is part of the purpose of the sermon on the mount. I also think another part of it is aspirational. That you read it and you say, "Lord, make me pure in heart." This is what I want. This is what I'm aiming for. Oh, oh if I could if I could taste Purity of heart, I know I would be happier, right? So it's, it, is, it is a counsel of despair. It's also meant to be aspirational, to, to orient you, to point you in the right direction of where your desires should be. So let's talk about the second half for a bit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the, the, the single-minded who pursue the good for they shall see God. What does that mean? Well, let's start with this. Biblically speaking, in many places, to see God means death. Okay? Exodus 32.20, if you can put that up. Exodus 32.20, where we read. Uh, God says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And you see this repeated throughout the Bible, that when people have an encounter with the holy God, their first assumption is, I'm dead, right? I'm done for. To see the face of God, listen to this qualifier, to see the face of God in all of his unmediated glory would indeed kill us. Repeatedly in scripture, again, when people were given some small glimpse of the, the outskirts, the edges of his glory, they were ruined. Think of Isaiah, right? Woe to me, for I am ruined. He falls on his face and says that. And that should, let me offer to you, that should temper, that should temper the way that we talk or we use even metaphorical language about wanting to see God, okay, if we say, well, well, I, really, you know, I, I just want to see God, okay? Just maybe offer some clarifications of what you mean there, because for a lot of the Bible, what you're saying is, I want to die. And beyond that, uh, the reality, what, what set Israel apart in the Old Testament, what really made them weird, and even what got them mocked by the other nations, is that their God was invisible, The second commandment is basically, don't take this God who's told you he's invisible and try to make him visible. That's what the second commandment is. Don't don't make uh, making images and idolatry and that sort of thing. It's this God that we worship, unlike the gods of the nations, is invisible. This is what makes the incarnation so spectacular because it was when the invisible God became visible right and so for our own for, for our own good no one has seen the invisible god in his totally unmediated glory john tells us that john chapter 1 verse 18 no one has ever seen god the only god who's at the father's side he jesus has made him known okay so for our own good we're kept from this and one of the again one of the glories of the incarnation is that god came down man saw god and lived even how appropriate on, on today which in the in the traditional church calendar is transfiguration sunday you might have noticed in your bulletin right even at this at this moment where the 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 veil is in some in some significant degree pulled back And Jesus, in all of his glory, is talking with Moses and Elijah, which, by the way, were the two Old Testament prophets who asked to see God. And here they are, getting their their answer as they talk with Jesus. So, my point so far is we should not speak lightly or carelessly of the idea that we sinful human beings are promised that the pure in heart will see God and presumably won't die because of it. So how is it that we're called to see God and not die? What, is this, what, is that, what does that even mean? And I want to get very concrete here because sometimes just within Christianity, we have a tendency to, to speak metaphorically and then not to really clarify what we mean. So we, uh, that we might speak even of like seeing God in a careless way. Uh, We talk about seeing God or beholding God or experiencing God or coming into God's presence and I'm saying we, we can risk blasphemy with those things if we don't know what we're saying and if we don't know what we mean. And so to come back to our question, what does it mean to behold God? What does it mean to see God? Notice I haven't said that Christians aren't allowed to talk that way because Jesus talked that way. Okay? So what does it mean? Well, for... For that question, I'm going to take you to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to show you something really, really cool. (laughs) Uh, So in Isaiah 40, verses 9 and 10, or 9 and and following, I think. Uh, Yeah, yeah, verses 9, 10, and 11, we'll get there. This is the passage from which, from which we get, Behold Your God. It's the, the call to Israel, the invitation, Behold Your God. Also, if you know the, the, the praise song that we've sung in service on occasion, uh, Behold Your God. This is the text where that is rooted. Okay. So I figured if there's a place in the Bible where God says, Come and see, right? That let, let's go there to get a sense of what it means. So, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So so notice some things here. Isaiah is calling on the people of God to behold their God. And the next thing he says is not a description of what this God is going to look like. It's not behold your God and he'll have a long beard or something like that. Right? It is behold your God And by the way, it's also not like a description of the throne room, which Isaiah could have given there. He did back in chapter six, you might know. Rather, when he says, behold your God, can we go back to the text, please, Jeremiah? When he says, behold your God, what he does immediately after that is he starts describing what God is like. He says, behold, behold your God. And I'm gonna start with gospel. A message of good news. Come and see your God. And by that I mean hear his gospel. And from there, this is not a God who is far off. He's a God who draws near. Behold your God, he comes with might. So he's drawing near to you. A God who's not weak, but mighty. And his arm rules for him. Also, this God is not stingy but he carries his reward for his people with him. His reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Reminds me of uh, the book of Hebrews, must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. What will this God do? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. So again, Isaiah is saying, I'm going to tell you about this God and about who he is for you. He will gather his people, his lambs, in his arms. He will carry them and gently lead those who are young. Isaiah invites, even commands the people of God, behold your God. And he does not at that point grab a canvas and say, I'm going to paint a picture of what he looks like. Behold. Because that might just be a second commandment violation, but we won't bother with that now. Behold your God. Here's what he is like. This is what he promises. This is what he's going to do for you his people this is who he is for you and so we see a sharp connection between beholding God and hearing about God from his own lips of what he's like you even see this in the praise song that I mentioned right behold your God and what it, what are we singing the whole time in the verses we're proclaiming God's attributes and his promises right who's held the ocean in his hands who's given counsel to the Lord, who feels the nails in his hands, you will reign forever. We're we're, we're telling the the, the attributes of our God and we're describing his promises. So for Christians, living on this side of the kingdom, to behold God means to hear again of his attributes, works, and promises. I'm going to repeat that because it's the most important sentence in the entire sermon. For Christians living on this side of the kingdom, to behold God means to hear again of his attributes, his works, and his promises. In other words, to behold him in his word. This is why every Sunday, we invite all the Rapides Parish to come and behold their God. To hear of him in his word. To behold him in his attributes, in his glorious works in history. Behold the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for you. And then we come to the table where with bread and wine we say again, Behold your God and look at all he has done for you in Christ Jesus. So what does all that have to do with being single-minded or, or pure in heart? To answer that, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 22, so Beatitudes chapter 5, this is the next chapter over, and Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So here Jesus talks about the, the eye, your eye is the lamp of your body by which I think he means that what you focus your eyes on, both literally and metaphorically, your, your mind's eye, in large part determines what excites your heart and shapes your desires. I already talked about this a bit in the sermon on hungering and thirsting for righteousness, how, how your desires and tastes can be cultivated. They don't just simply happen to you. And so Jesus is saying, have a care, care about what your eyes are focused on. Care about what your eyes are focused on. Are they focused on, are they focused on a mirror? On, on yourself? Are they focused on someone else's life that you hear about, maybe on social media? Are they focused on terrifying predictions from the news and the internet? Are they focused on lust or greed or covetousness? This is why scripture is frequently using the word behold. Right? Behold, 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 which, which just means look. Look at this. And so to give you an idea of what I think Jesus is saying here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. This is a little, little cheesy, but you, you hopefully will remember it. So this is a business card that I use. Um, had a bunch of them made with my name on it, and uh, I, I misspelled something on the first batch, but then I got it spelled right on the second one, so here they are. And so, this is a business card. Now, don't overthink this. I really mean for it to be one of the most simple questions you'll ever hear in a sermon. Is this object a large object or a small object? Small. Small. It's a very small object, right? Literally fits in my pocket, right? It is a small thing. It is not like a big stinking threat to me, right? I'm not afraid of it. As I said, fits in my pocket, Seemingly small, seemingly insignificant. If I put it here, It has now become rather large to my eyes. It is the very only thing that I am beholding. I can barely see all of you as I'm looking around the room here because this card is right in front of my face taking up most of my vision. Some of you are already ahead of me on where I'm going with this. The business card is a small object, but if it's placed in front of my eyes in such a way that it blocks out my vision, then there's going to be quite a lot I can't see. I think that what Jesus is reminding us of in this beatitude is something like that. That the pure in heart, those who are pursuing, longing for, and growing in single-mindedness, devotion for Jesus, they see God at work in them and around them. They hear him in his word. They behold his promises and his works and and his attributes. You know why? Because some small pathetic idol isn't taking up 70% of their vision. This connects to just a basic principle in the Christian life that that we all must know. And if if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. It it is a simple reality in life that you become what you behold. You become what you behold. What you behold where, where your eyes are, where your focus is, where your thoughts are, where your mental life is, where your daydreaming's at, you become what you behold. That's why Jesus talks about your eyes either being full of light or full of darkness, right? Because you, you become more and more like what you are beholding, what you're gazing at, what you're longing for, and daydreaming about, and so. So where does that leave us just in, in, terms of, in terms of what God would do with us? Again, my goal right now is to bring you into that council of despair. What then do we do? The good news is our God is the great purifier of our hearts. And he means to make us fit to see him on the last day. As you sang in Psalm 51 earlier this morning, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit. David understood that the pure in heart are not a class of like super monks in a monastery who have, who have discovered the secret of, of strength to staying pure in heart. Rather, the pure in heart are those who have prayed for it and who've been given it by God. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he means to activate the deepest longing in your soul. He means for you to say, to be pure in heart. What would that even be like? What would my mental life be like? What would my speech be like? And then he means for you to say, to see God. Should that not be the whole objective of my life? Should that not be the objective of this whole project? Would it not be true that the things of earth would grow strangely dim when compared to the prospect of seeing God. Jesus means to activate that very longing in your heart and in mine. And he means for you and I to say, but, but my heart is so far from that. Every day I wake up, I have the competing desires. Every day the small idols feels like they're taking up half my vision. Every day I'm falling short. To you, the Lord Jesus holds out hope and says, come to me, and be purified. Come to me and I will give you the rest, that your sins are forgiven, that you stand before me perfectly pure, and I will help you to hate your sin and to love my ways, clearing your vision more and more and more and more until the last day where you will actually come face to face with me. We have no higher, better hope to offer than this. Purify your hearts then. Come to Jesus and ask for a new one. That's what I mean. Because he promises that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Do you have another goal or objective in life that's more important than that? Do you? In the name of Jesus. Amen. And so our Father, we ask for help in this. Open our eyes, Lord that we may see Jesus, that we may behold our God, exalted on His throne, by hearing and declaring his attributes, his promises, his words to one another. This will come to us as a gift from you, by grace alone. So we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.